Hello and welcome to LPO Offstage. I'm Yolanda Brown and this is the podcast that gets down to the nitty gritty of the lives of musicians, classical music and beyond with members of the London Philharmonic Orchestra. Today we're discovering what it's like to choose music for an orchestra and how you play, rehearse and conduct very contrasting music across a whole season. I'm joined by the LPO's principal conductor Ed Gardner, trumpeter Anne McEnany and double bass player Sebastian Penn. Lovely to see you again, Anne and Seb. Hello. And you. Hi, Yolanda. (laughs) And welcome, Ed. Thank you. It's lovely to do my first proper LPO podcast. I'm excited. And how has life been since you took over as principal conductor last season? Thanks. Yeah, it's been a whirlwind, really, because, you know, we came out of these crazy two years of, I mean, some wonderful performances, mostly online, that we managed to achieve. But to come back to full audiences with Tippett's Midsummer Marriage, that wonderful celebration of classical music, of opera, of dramatic art, was a real thrill. And we've sort of gone on from there with huge programmes. I have to say that when you plan your first season, you want to make a statement for your partnership with the orchestra. And I think I really think we did. We, we were all pretty exhausted at the end of the season. I got a holiday. The orchestra went straight into Glyndebourne, so they're probably not thanking me for that. But I'm really proud of what we achieved this first season, for sure. Then how do you approach a new season? And first of all, who decides what music will be in? The LPO has a wonderful team. It's often a, a discussion between the players and me on some levels. I mean, I'm really interested to hear what the players want to perform, what they think is missing from their diet. And I've had some really, there are so many intrepid musicians in the orchestra who have given me such interesting viewpoints on that. But fundamentally for me, it's a discussion with the artistic administrator. We've, in the last 18 months, got a new artistic administrator, Elena Dubinet. So I don't know if you've spoken to yet, but I'm sure you will. It's a about how to place you know, my programmes within the bigger context of the orchestra season and making sure there's balance, there are enough programmes that give an audience you know, confidence to come and see the LPO, and that's often about popularity of repertoire. But something I've thought about a lot since I got this job two or three years ago is how to make the LPO distinctive within this very crowded environment that London orchestral music is. And for me, that's many facets. It's a lot about the LPO's heritage. And, you know, you see this next season, we have the Elgar symphonies and, and some Mahler. I mean, that's in the lifeblood of the orchestra and has been since Adrian Bolt through to Klaus Tenstedt and on and beyond. And I think the quality of that sound that the orchestra produces in that repertoire is extremely distinctive. And then it's um, casting the net wide and seeing what we can do that no one else is doing really. And that's, of course, commissions having programmes where perhaps the combination of pieces is what you might expect. I was especially proud of the the Haydn-Bartok combination we did last season with Haydn's Nitus Symphony and then Bluebeard's Castle, which don't seem like very easy bedfellows, but in fact they come from the same tradition and there's this thing of C major which binds both pieces and in Haydn it's a C major that makes you laugh and the audience really did. And in Bartok it's a C major which horrifies you, which, which is also the response your audience got. So even with very mainstream repertoire, I like to present it in a in a way that perhaps hasn't regularly been heard before. So you're always hearing these great pieces fresh. Yeah, it's very, very, uh, very clever. I like that. Anne and Seb, how much are you involved in the planning of a season? Or is it almost like a, a big reveal and then you know what comes next? Anne, I'll start with you. Oh, it's a big reveal. It generally comes in February 
when we get our advanced schedules, we ha- our schedules run from September to the end of August each year. Uh, so in February, we get the one that's coming up in the next season. It's always a point when you can see people going frantically looking through to see what's coming up, rep-wise and also time-wise, because obviously we need to sort out our practice time, our personal practice time before we go to the rehearsals. Uh, so February, yeah, so it's, right. it's reasonably short notice, I suppose. <laughs> And uh, Seb, what's the first thing that you do when you're frantically looking through the season? Are you looking for the tricky pieces? Are you looking for your favourites? What's the first thing you do? I was just going to say, I think they used to send an email with the advanced schedule during a rehearsal, which would be quite distracting because lots of people would be (laughs) going through that rather than paying attention. (laughs) (laughs) I think they've stopped doing that now. They picked up on the distraction. Um, What do I look at? Honestly, I I quite like looking ahead to see what tours are coming up personally, because that's always a a highlight for me. But yeah, obviously, what sort of repertoire we've got coming up and who's coming in to conduct as well. But Ed, you're involved in the process, I'm guessing, right, in terms of the repertoire that would would be chosen and um, uh, and where it features within within the year. That's right. And uh, for this season we have coming up 22-23, my starting point actually was that it's the LPO's 90th season. It was one of those, you know, lockdown months when I had nothing else to do, but I went through all the pieces that the LPO had commissioned from its inception. And that's a fascinating document and a fascinating journey to look through. And a lot of the pieces that you see within the season are pieces that were premiered by the LPO. And just off the top of my head, that, that I mean, the big concert for that is the um, Child of Our Time and Serenade to Music by Vaughan Williams. Both pieces premiered in, well, for the Vaughan Williams in one of its forms by the LPO. And uh, also George. Benjamin Southern Time later in the season because you know we live in a in a world where it's very easy to get those first performances of pieces and then they quickly vanish. So I think part of our advocacy is maintaining the repertoire and, and keeping it coming back. And then talking to Elena, one thing that really resonated with both of us is this idea of refuge. And Child of Our Time, you know, is a piece which seems to become more and more prescient in what it demands of us and the listener and what it what it challenges us within that world. And then Elena really flew with that and found quite a few pieces that reflected that and how classical music, how our world can reflect, comment, soothe things in this with this subject matter. And I think um, I call it a thread that runs through the Ooh. season and whets people's appetite for what they might see and come more than once. And something that you can, on different levels, identify with, I guess, with that thread. That's really great. Now, and I did say, you know, was it a big reveal? It's like, oh, yes, big reveal. We just see the programme and that's it. But there is a little bit more consultation. We've learned here on LPO Offstage that it very much is a family and very collaborative throughout how the LPO operates. How much are you involved in sort of putting your opinions across if you wanted to? Because there is a committee as well of musicians that can speak to Ed and, and Eleanor as well, right? Absolutely, yes. I mean, if if you have strong feelings about perhaps a composer who you feel has been neglected in the repertoire, of course we can suggest things. Like you say, it's a a lovely family feeling with the orchestra and I don't think anyone feels that they can't approach Ed, for example, or or Elena and give their opinions. And talk to me a bit about the uh, four world premieres that you have in the 22-23 season and how does it work sort of both taking on new music conducting them, playing them, rehearsing them? It's a different discipline, for sure, from putting together a piece that the auction knows well, but it's an exciting one too, and I think the players find the same thing. And this last season we had, we've had a few 
huge world premieres and big contests with only new music. And uh, some of it was, I have to say, crazy hard. I mean, often when you're programming these pieces, you haven't seen a score and sometimes they haven't even been written. So you're kind of, um, it's a wait and see situation. I mean, one of the great experiences of this last season was, was putting together Brett Dean's cello concerto, beautifully played by Alban Gerhardt. And as one of the players, one of the viola players said to me, this piece is almost impossible but every note is clearly so important, we just want to try and make it right. And that's wow. such a beautiful way of looking at a difficult, a difficult piece of new music. You do structure rehearsals differently for a very new piece of music, but the orchestra's so calm with it, it's, it's wonderful. Even the most difficult, let's say impenetrable pieces on first reading that we've had this season, the orchestra have just absolutely approached it with total professionality and calmness it's been and that makes my job of course much easier when when you're standing in front of an orchestra who clearly don't like the piece they're being given it can be that's when I earn my money I think probably but the LPO are very chilled out about that and I, I really appreciate it. Seb, I think you're the coolest person I, I know. Just very, very calm, very cool. Whatever happens, happens. You, 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 need, to, you need to get out more, Yolanda. <laughs> well, I'm going to try and break this myth now. I mean, when these new commission pieces come onto your desk, and some of them may be quite tricky, as, as we just heard there with Ed, or some just don't make any sense, how do you approach those? I mean, you know, a lot of the repertoire that we're, you know, the standard repertoire, you don't necessarily, a lot of the time, need to do much practice on it because you're like you know you remember it it's stored in your your data banks but when you come across a new thing you you have to set aside some time to just figure out the geography of it sometimes it's accompanied by text explaining extended techniques so it's obviously worth reading that before right. you start a rehearsal stuff like the way they notate stuff for playing behind the bridge and Anne, how do you overcome that personal taste versus going to get this job done when you see a new piece of music? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> uh, well, it's it's my job, so I have to get on with it, whether I like the music or not. But by and large, I do. I mean, there's very rare occasions when I think, oh, gosh, I don't like this, even though it may be incredibly challenging We've just been talking about how, how it can be incredibly difficult to play, mm. particularly for trumpet players or brass players. We have all kinds of issues with mutes. Some composers are very good at asking you to use about four or five different mutes without allowing you the time to change them. Particularly, I, I would imagine, with trombones, where they really need to grip their instrument. It's not so bad for the trumpets because they're small and light, but that can be a problem. And also, playing the trumpet, we don't necessarily play on the key trumpet that they've mentioned. For example, a lot of the parts will be in C. Mm. We, for the most part, play B-flat, but we, we do pick up the E-flat quite a few times, particularly when it goes high or you feel that the tone quality of the instrument would help the music. The C trumpet is considerably brighter, so... We kind of compromise sometimes with the darker side of the B-flat and the brighter side of the E-flat. And then is it quite comforting then when you do see the pieces that you play regularly come through, like the Mahler and Elgar? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Although they're not without the challenges also, but at least you're familiar with how to approach them. And Seb, is that the same for you when you see pieces that you've played a lot? Is there a smile that comes to your face or is it like, oh, not again? Well, it depends what it is. <laughs> if it's... Um... Oh, I'm not going to name any composers in case I, <laughs> in case I get into hot water. But yeah, there's definitely a sort of relaxation, a, a dropping of shoulders collectively mm. when you've finished that part of the rehearsal. 
That makes sense. And Ed, I wanted to actually ask the question to you also, because you hear from the musicians that, okay, they can have opinion, but at the end of the day, it's their job and they will play the music that's presented to them. You're involved in that curating and building the programme. Is there ever a piece that you think, oh, that should go there, but I really don't like it. No, I'm not doing it. Or do you actually end up conducting pieces that you're not quite a fan of as well? Cool, that's a good question. I, I, great orchestras can tell when a conductor's not invested in a piece of music. I mean, it's your job to be there and do the best you possibly can for the work and the composer. So I really don't take on music that I don't believe in. Uh, Seb said that he doesn't want to get in hot water, but I'll, I'll launch right, I'll do dive it. right do in. It. I, I mean, you'll see from my programming, there's no Shostakovich. I, don't, I very rarely, I do a couple of the concerti, but I don't find I have an affinity with the symphonies. I mean, I tried when I was younger and it's just not, it's just not music for me. I some, there's something that I don't quite trust. So you really don't conduct pieces that you don't like. Otherwise, it really doesn't work. People see through you. With pieces that have been written yesterday <laughs> and maybe after the, you know, the black print has gone in the programme, yes. you don't have that option. I always try and respect what's in front of me and not show if there's something that I don't quite believe in or I, don't, I feel the complexity is maybe overwritten or the effect doesn't come across the way the composer intends. So it's about sort of humility, actually, with new music a lot of the time. But I just want to go back to something that Seb said about repertoire, about mainstream repertoire and the new pieces. Actually, I think one of the biggest parts of my job and potentially most challenging is rehearsing a piece at the auction note extremely well yes. and getting something, a very, you know, a specific interpretation that, that I want out of it because those big symphonies or whatever it is, that, the overtures that the auction have played every season or every other season, they can be locked into a certain way of playing. And that's annoying for an orchestra, actually, initially, when you have to kind of break it before you form it again. That process can be quite difficult. I mean, I, you always feel at the end you found the freshness, but it's often rehearsing the very well-known pieces that is hardest for me. You took the question right out of my mouth, Ed, because we've spoken about this a few times on, on the podcast and we're always hearing it from the musician's point of view. But to hear that, yes, if you want to try a different interpretation of a well-known piece, you will have to break it to make it. And, and sometimes that can be quite frustrating for the musicians. I'm guessing you can see where Ed would want to take the piece. He's explained it to the orchestra. What is that process like of rebuilding something that you're so familiar with? It's very exciting because you're getting a music that is subjective and everyone has their own views of how it should go. Everyone brings out a different emotional quality in it, in their interpretation. So, yeah, it's really interesting to see. And actually, in our parts, I don't know if, if the rest of the orchestra do this, but you have all kinds of markings and the initials of the conductor who's requested it in brackets so that you know when they're on, you don't need to go through it again. You know what they want because you've already marked it in. That's very fascinating. I like that. Seb, what about for you? Knowing a piece almost, I know we don't, we don't say autopilot, but semi-autopilot where you know you can perform it. To break that and break that familiarity, is that quite hard to do? It probably is, especially in really mainstream stuff like maybe Tchaikovsky 5 or any Brahms. I think that it's kind of like trying to change the direction of a huge ship <laughs> it can take a while I think sometimes maybe people are sort of so used to doing it one way they might initially not be 100% on board with mm. uh, a new interpretation and then eventually be like oh actually that does work that is interesting 
stay the course. It's worth it. You'll get there in the end. <laughs> We've had it re- very recently with, um, we just changed conductors for Mozart's Marriage of Figaro. We've done 10 performances with Giancarlo Andretta and now we've got Nicholas Carter seeing us through to the end of the run and he's introduced some new tempos and a few changes and it was obviously going really well with Andretta but it's nice to have a sort of fresh set of eyes on it actually. Ed, in this next season, uh, starting September 2022, you're conducting quite a few large choral works as well. What are they and why? I am, yes, and we're performing a lot of a lot of the biggest sort of pieces. Schoenberg's Guralieder is one of the largest scale, beautiful, effusive outpourings of, of late romanticism. That's a real advert for what we do as a symphony orchestra. I love choral music. I love that repertoire anyway, but I think there's something about the resonance in the festival hall that really chimes with pieces on that scale. Later in the season, of course, we've got together the Damnation of Faust, Berlioz's Damnation of Faust. And the orchestra have a wonderful tradition of this. I think it's great in the festival hall that we show the orchestra's brilliance in playing opera and bringing out all the emotions and drama of the operatic repertoire. Of course, for Glyndebourne audiences, that's a given. And, you know, Glyndebourne, the Glyndebourne performances often come to the proms as well. But I think in our home, in the Festival Hall, it's really important that every year, if possible, we put on one of those operas and just show what the LPO can do with all that flexibility. And Seb, what is the experience when you hear that large choral addition to already what is such a grand sound of the LPO? It makes um, running for the tea in the break quite stressful um, <laughs> at Henrywood Hall when the choir is there. Let's be practical after um, all, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> A few more bodies um, backstage. <laughs> yeah. And, and what is it like for you? I mean, being in the horn section and, yeah, really being the ones that bring the volume sometimes to the orchestra and then adding all of these voices as well. What is that emotion like for you and how are you looking forward to it next season? Very much looking forward to it. Um, Gerolida is is so vast. I've only played it once, I think, because it is so huge. It isn't played with great frequency, so I'm looking forward to that. But where we sit at the back, it's more than emotion. I mean, you get caught up with the sound. When the chorus get going, and, and my goodness, they can certainly do that, it can be quite loud on top of the noise that noise of course we make a beautiful sound but the, the, the loudness that we're producing in our own section that is it can be quite huge wow sorry i heard this wonderful comment for it. it was another london orchestra where apparently the chorus are very very close by them when they perform and the entire brass section have to wash their hair before they leave leave the hall afterwards because they've <laughs> they've had uh, you know a lot of projectile saliva <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that is a lovely, lovely. 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 <laughs> Forget yeah. about the tea, Seb. This is way more practical. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, remember, yeah. I remember doing a performance of the Glycolytic Mass in Norwich and essentially the chorus was so close to us that they kept resting their music on our heads and that is irritating. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> That's a next level. <laughs> I mean, only because they were tired holding the copies up, you know, they oh, just absolutely. kept dropping. you get this boink on the top of your head. <laughs> Uh, not, to, not to mention the other thing yeah. that would, for which they should provide you with umbrellas, I think. Yeah, right. <laughs> and Ed, I've noticed that in this season as well, there's a focus on British composers. What does it feel like, obviously, being in London, being a, a British-based orchestra? What is that emotion like and why, why the focus on British composers this year? 
There's a few things connected to that. It's uh, Vaughan Williams's 150th anniversary of his his birth, so we're celebrating that, of course, with um, with a few programs. We just did the Fifth Symphony at the end, towards the end of this season. We've had and we'll have um, serenade and music and a few other pieces through the year. Yeah, it's funny to say this, but my relationship with British music is quite ambivalent. I don't love all of it, and there's a lot of Vaughan Williams I haven't found my way into, for instance, but. The Elgar symphonies, which are so connected to this orchestra, I mean, not just right back to Adrian Bolt, but those cycles that Schulte and Heiting did in the, in the 70s or 80s, I think that's a real pleasure. And there's, there's a sort of emotional shorthand that, that the LPO has for those pieces, which is really intoxicating to stand in front of because we understand the temperature of the piece mm-hmm. and where the emotion comes out and this reserve that's so in, in British art, isn't it? This, this sense of surface reserve and emotion boiling up underneath it and how to bring that out. I mean, I think this orchestra really understands that about when the emotion does pour out and when, it's, when we're trying to keep a stiff upper lip. And also for you, Seb, do you feel the history of the music being British and being here, playing it here, that it just comes together a bit more? I mean, I think we do it well and we have that sort of, you know, we've got that tone and sound for for pieces like Elgar and I think Britain we do really well as well. But I, I don't know if I feel that sort of visceral British pride or anything. I'm sort of... Being a Welshman, I, again, I can get into a hot water about it. But I mean, you know, I, I love playing Elgar. It really speaks to me a lot. In the history of the orchestra, I mean, again, back to those commissions that I talked about, some of the earliest commissions in the first years of the orchestra were Szymanowski, Schoenberg and Bartok. And I think this orchestra has always had this, it always looked out into Europe and beyond. I think we as British musicians feel it, and the LPO definitely has that in its background. But I think for this orchestra, what I'm finding is that a, a Mahler symphony is as much home as Elgar One might be. Brilliant. Ed, you said something really fascinating that I'm still hanging on to about the link between Bluebeard and Haydn, which I think was just absolutely fabulous. Is there anything similar to that we can look forward to coming up? Because we still have that juxtaposition of old and new uh, coming through. When you're programming these concerts, has there been the link between something commissioned and something that's more familiar that's coming up in the programme? There isn't anything as specific as the Haydn and Bartok combination, but early in the season we're pairing a Wagner Tannhäuser overture with uh, Mendelssohn's Fifth Symphony. Those two composers together are fascinating because you see what Wagner syringed out of Mendelssohn effectively to create his own world and of course developed it in, with his genius. But that's something which I find really interesting. And what are some of the highlights that you're looking forward to for next season's programme? I'm really looking forward to revisiting the Mendelssohn Reformation Symphony with Ed. Very much looking forward to that. I really enjoyed it when we did it previously. I wouldn't be a true brass player if I didn't say I was looking forward to the Rite of Spring. Gerrit Leder has got fantastic brass writing. Bartok Concerto for Orchestra, which is particularly challenging for me because as a second trumpet player, I don't often get solos. But in this I do. I get to start all kinds of fugues and things by myself, which I'm is marvellous. And, <laughs> and actually, there's one in the last movement, which we have a game on bus three. I think you've probably in the podcast previously heard a bit about bus three. Absolutely. And the back rows of bus three are predominantly brass players, as you can imagine. And we have a game which we play with a stopwatch and it's based on that theme. And so you push the stopwatch at the beginning, 
finish it at the end and it has to be dead on 10 seconds, which has no bearing really to the tempo that it would have whenever you're playing in the orchestra. <laughs> but it goes, not one, two, and stop it there. And it has to be dead on 10 seconds. I absolutely and, love that. <laughs> Lee Smarkless has done it in 10 seconds, first go. Elizabeth Wicklander, who's who's one of the cello players in the orchestra, she got it spot on oh, the first time. That's amazing. amazing. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I wish that the listeners could actually see us. We're here on, <laughs> on a video call and, and literally had pressed her timer. <laughs> she was well practised yeah. and pressed at the end as well. I, would, I wish yeah. we could have timed that one. I'm sure it would have been <laughs> yeah. very, very close. Uh, no, I don't want you to time that one. <laughs> I know what I'm doing on the train down to Glyndebourne today. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, but it's the basic second trumpet version, not not the string with the, the extra little little bits in it. Ah, oh, because that will give you extra time. Oh, well, depends how fast you can sing them, I suppose. <laughs> Oh, lovely! Thank you, Anne. Those are great highlights. Um, and Seb, what are you looking forward to for next season? There's loads of stuff I haven't done before next season. I haven't played Guru Leader. I haven't played Janacek's Glagolitic Mass. Tippett's A Child of Our Time I haven't played. I, I missed um, Damnation of Faust when the LPO did it at Glyndebourne a few years ago. So I'm looking forward to all of those. Last season we did this Lutoslowski cello, was it cello concerto or cello yes. symphony? Yeah, cello concerto, like, yeah. 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 I loved that and we're doing some Lutoslowski this season at symphony number four. So I'm excited for that. Yeah, quite a lot of Mahler coming up, which I love. So we've got Mahler 5 with Ed, Mahler 9 with um, Vladimir Yurovsky, Mahler 10, Zadagio with uh, Klaus Meckler. So there's quite a lot. It, it all looks great, actually. I'm, I'm you see what I mean? I mean, it. when you work your way through, yeah. the circles just keep on going. That's brilliant. Yeah. Thank you for those highlights, Seb. And Ed, could you share with me some of, of your highlights as well for next season? I mean, I love the look of the whole season. I'm not, I'm not just talking about my concerts either. I think it's a beautifully put together season with, with great guest artists. And I think it's all pretty wonderful. But I mean, to kick it off with Guru Leader, it's a piece which comes along once in a generation. And I think, you know, the scale of it, it's, it's, it's bigger than Marla 8 in many ways. I mean, not so many soloists perhaps, but it has, I mean, the scale and scope and the fantasy of the piece is, is on another level. And I think... Start the season there and then just come to every concert afterwards. That's all I ask of, of our audience. Just, just camp out. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. And I'm looking forward to the new works as well, because I, I know there is an excitement on stage and off stage when you're hearing a, a piece of work that hasn't been played before. So I know that those were will definitely be ones to circle as well. Well, thank you all so much for sharing. I can tell there's excitement. I'm looking forward to it too. It's been wonderful to speak to you here on LPR Stage, Ed, Seb and Anne. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Yolanda. Well, that's it for now from LPO Offstage with me, Yolanda Brown. Thanks so much to Ed Gardner, Anne McEnany and Seb Penner for sharing their take on the LPO's upcoming season and what it takes to play and conduct a huge range of music. Thanks so much for listening. We've come to the end of Series 4 of the podcast. I can't believe it. So do check out our previous episodes for lots of insights into the world of orchestral playing and some top tips too. I'll see you very, very soon. 